Welcome everybody to the third edition of the Youth Fireset Chat. Um, you might recognize our participants. Uh, we have Kyle back and we have Alexander back. And unfortunately, we are again missing a few other participants which actually wanted to join us, but maybe they join late. We'll see. So, um, Kyle, you have the first question. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, Tom, I was wondering, you know, obviously we spend our lives living in this, in, this, uh, in this PMR, but I was wondering if you could explain to us how non-PMRs work and if they have a rule set and if so, how it works. Okay. Well, other, other virtual reality uh, frames that we would, we would call non-physical reality and PMR because they're not here, right? You just call the reality that you're in physical and all the rest of them we call non-physical. Uh, they're all pretty much equivalent, but they're just different. And the one that we're perceiving in is the one we think is physical. So these other reality frames that we're not perceiving in until we maybe travel there with our minds or go out of body to get there, they work very much like this one in the sense that they have the same purpose. Um, individuated units of consciousness make choices, and by those choices, they evolve or de-evolve just like here. So that's the same. Um, their rule sets can be different, which means they don't necessarily evolve uh, in the same way that we have evolved here. So it's not like it's just a copy of our reality. They can be quite different. The characters in them don't have to be humanoid at all. Uh, they could have evolved differently. So they're different in those kinds of aspects, but in the more fundamental aspects, um, they are pretty much the same in that they all have the same purpose. It's all about choice. It's all about consciousness evolution. Uh, there are some that have very, uh, what I should call, loose rule sets. And those would be like a dream reality where you don't have a, a rule set that, that re, you know, that defines every detail of interaction. So in the dream reality, you can fly, you can teleport, you can suddenly disappear and wake up. Uh, there's a lots of, of choices that you have that you don't have here because the rule set gives a lot more, um, freedom, if you will, for you to do as you please. There's not so many rules. Um, other places have tight rule sets like the one that we have in, in our physical reality, and they tend to be interactive like our physical reality is. Uh, things you do and say uh, have consequences, and those consequences will change what other people may do and say. So it's a very interactive space, whereas the dream reality is not such an interactive space. It's just you and the characters that you're interacting with, but everything else is kind of grayed out. It's not this, this whole world that's interacting. It's just your little piece of it that's in your dream is the only part that's there. So it's different. So each one of these uh, things I call a reality frame, other people might want to call them different dimensions, but that's a little confusing because when we hear the word dimensions, we tend to think of geometric dimensions. You know, 1D, 2D, 3D, 4D, those kinds of dimensions have to do with spatial, the geometric uh, spatial dimensions. And dimensions in this case aren't at all geometric and aren't at all spatial. They are just different reality frames. You might think um, 
like they're different um, video games going on. It's like you're playing The Sims, World of Warcraft, uh, No Man's Sky, and maybe, uh, you know, something else. And you have three computers. You're going to have all three of those games up at the same time and be playing all three sequentially, if not all parallel. So it's it's sort of like that, Kyle. Does that help? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Tom. Okay, then the next question is from Alexander. So I'd like to ask if the larger consciousness system could ever have some sort of glitch. Well, the larger consciousness system is not a perfect system. It's a natural system, not a supernatural system. And, and as, a, as a finite natural system, it sometimes has limitations. Uh, it only uh, has a certain number of bits at its command, only has a certain amount of speed with which it can move data. So there are limitations, which means it can run into glitches based on the limitations. And it doesn't always know exactly what's going on everywhere either. So there can be glitches in the sense that something happened somewhere and it's just not paying attention. And that glitch might persist a while before the system pays attention to it. So there's rules in the system. And there are instances where IUOCs break those rules. And most of the time, rule breakers are uh, uh, dealt with, or you might say caught and uh, dealt with, but sometimes not. Sometimes it just passes, as they say, under the radar screen, and uh, they uh, get away with breaking the rules. So in that way, it's sort of like being here. You know, we have rules here, and sometimes people break them, and mostly they have to pay the consequences, but sometimes they just kind of get away easy without having to pay any consequences. So it's, uh, I don't know, does that answer your question? Uh, Alexander, did you want to ask a, a little more about that? No, it's a perfect answer. It's just something I would like to know, seeing as the larger consciousness system is almost like the chips inside of a computer. Yeah, it's sort of like that. I mean, that's our model, that it's a, that it's like a, a big computer. You know, that's the model we have of it, but that's just a model. So you can think of it like that because that helps us, you know, it gives us a metaphor that we can use to think about it. We need metaphors in order to think about it, but it's not really just a big computer. It's really different than that. But that's our metaphor for it, and that's about as good a metaphor as we can, as we can get. That it's a, a conscious computer. It's a computer that is aware, that has self-awareness, and free will. So in that sense, yes, it's a it's a very large uh, computer with an awful lot of memory and an awful lot of bits to work with. But that's a decent metaphor. The other, you know, it has other problems sometimes. Like it had to grow up, just like we do. That larger consciousness system didn't just pop into existence with a very low entropy and, uh, you know, a lot of understanding and pure love. You know, that's not the way it started. It starts just like us. It had to learn all the same lessons we're trying to learn. It had to figure out that uh, cooperation, caring, and compassion are the ways that you optimize interaction within a social system. It didn't know that when it started. So in ways... It's not that different than us. We, it's just a, has a lot more capacity 
works at a much faster level than our reality, of course. And it's uh, probably a few, uh, you know, trillion years ahead of us. But other than that, it's similar uh, to us. And that's because we're just a piece of it. You see, we're a chip off that block. So we are a piece of that larger conscious system. And we have all the kind of the, the um, attributes of the larger consciousness system and with our own consciousness. We can, too, evolve just as the larger conscious system has evolved to be something like it. But uh, it takes us a while. We're still uh, kind of in the, in the baby steps of that, not in the end stages of that. But uh, So it has its own issues and problems, and it also has to grow up and figure things out. It's not just the perfect system that's, that's done. It's still evolving. Thank you for the answer, John. You're welcome. Kyle, okay. go ahead with your next one. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Tom, I was wondering if the system uh, was to, in, you know, essentially crash, uh, would we know about it? And if so, what, what, would it, what would happen? Well, you know, that's a good, uh, that's a good question, but it kind of depends on how it crashed, I guess. You see, this is a, this is a, um, a digital system that's being computed. And I suspect if that system crashed in the sense, let's say just the part that's doing our physical reality. Let's just take that part of it. Let's say the, the, um, the, the server that renders our reality here crashed. Well, it would probably pick back up again right where it left off <coughs> once the crash problem was solved. And if it did, we probably wouldn't notice because it would stop at, uh, you know, at uh, time equals T, and then it would pick right back up again at time equals T plus delta T. It would um, be able to start up right where it stopped. For, for us, you know, it would seem from the outside that time would stand still here for a while until the problem got fixed, but from the inside, it wouldn't seem like there was a problem. It would just seem continuous. Now, for the consciousness, it would seem that that awareness, it would seem like, you know, um, for, the, for the larger cons <coughs> consciousness system, it would see the problem and be able to fix it. For our um, individuated unit of consciousness, it would probably be aware that suddenly the data stream stopped. <coughs> but for our free will awareness unit, which is the character, you know, the part of us playing this character, it probably really wouldn't notice much. It would stop and then it would start up again. Okay, thank you, Tom. <clears throat> so, Tom, I was wondering if, um, I'm sure you've played games, or at least heard of games, or seen games such as like Grand Theft Auto V, it's a massive open world simulation, and uh, as, as uh, you're probably aware, there can be glitches within, within them, so ranging from small to big, you know, a car might go more fast than it was meant to, or you might go go inside of a wall that you weren't meant to. So I was wondering if you can apply that same thing to this VR. You know, can you can there be a massive breach of rule set to the point where you can pass through solid matter as we would imagine like ghosts would or something like that? Well, this is a virtual reality, so almost anything can happen. Um, the system can create 
any kind of effect it wants. So if the system would like you to experience three little aliens that come down out of their ship, land in your front yard, walk in your front door, and come up and, uh, you know, shake your hand and ask you how you're doing, then the system could put that in your data stream. Yeah. All it has to do is put that information in your data stream, and that's what you see. That's what you'll interpret. So it can do pretty much what it likes if, indeed, you, uh, you know, were trapped inside some place and you couldn't get out, it may just re-render you outside. And you might just wonder, uh, how'd you get out there, you know? And you might find that it was impossible because there were no doors or windows and nothing was broken, there isn't any hole. So it can do things like that that seem miraculous. But it doesn't do that kind of thing very often. And it never does that kind of thing if there's whole lots of people watching, you know, if it's going to be, you know, broadcast to the world, it would, you know, it would uh, doubly not want to do those things because those things make this reality non-uniform. You know, you can't depend on a reality where crazy things like that happen. Uh, things are and then they are not, you know, they come and they go, they teleport around. People walk through walls sometimes and sometimes they don't, you know, that kind of a reality gets to be, it has so much uncertainty in it that it loses its its uh, ability to be a good schoolhouse. Because a good schoolhouse needs consequences. If you do something, it has to be pretty certain that you're going to get a response back. And that response needs to be consistent. So living in a consistent reality makes this a good schoolhouse, a, a good place to evolve the quality of our consciousness. If the schoolhouse wasn't consistent, if it had those kinds of strange things happening, then it would be a lot harder to learn because it would be an inconsistent schoolhouse. And you know that doesn't make a good school. When things are very inconsistent, what it does is creates confusion and nobody knows you know, what happened and why it happened. And the idea that, that uh, you have feedback now starts to dissipate. So we have things that can happen that seem kind of miraculous. Yes, all of that is possible, but it's only possible in as much as the larger consciousness system allows it to happen because it's basically breaking the rule set at a, uh, you know, uh, temporarily for a particular person in a particular situation. When it does do that, it tries to do it as discreetly as possible. Like sometimes there are um, NPCs, non-player characters. That's a character that the computer is playing. It's not really uh, a character that's in the, in the game trying to learn and grow. It's just a character that pops in for a job and pops out. Well, those are things like that. And that's done very discreetly. Somebody needs some help, needs some information needs a helping hand, and that happens, and they just disappear, just like they appeared. But they don't do that in front of a, in a crowd, you see. They do that very anonymously. So, yes, miracles like that can happen, but they're extremely rare, and they only happen where the system feels that there is a, a, a need for them to happen, and that need is based on long-term entropy reduction. If by its 
interfering with what's happening here is going to create uh, entropy reduction, better a better set of choices for more people than it may find that worthwhile to do. But for the most part, the system butts out and just, just lets people interact however they do, however that is, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. It just lets that happen because that is our feedback. Anytime the, the system interferes, it really is erasing some of our feedback, which is not a good thing. So it has to it has to weigh those possibilities, and only if the entropy reduction seems to be uh, seems to weigh in favor of it intervening do we get intervention. Other than that, it lets us stew in our own juice. It lets us have the consequences of our own choices, and it doesn't really um, interfere. Uh, very often, actually, it interferes as as, le as little as it can. Okay, thank you for your answer, Tom. That that really clear cleared things up for me. So, Tom, when I'm uh, meditating, I generally have no problem uh, with keeping my intent at the back of my mind, not concentrating on it too much. Um, but I I thought you'd be able to answer this. So, um. If you try hard when meditating, so if your intent is to uh, change data stream, for example, um, you put it at the front of your mind and keep concentrating on it, you know, change data stream, change data stream. Why, why does that make it practically impossible for you to achieve your, your intent? Uh, why, if you, if you concentrate too much on what it is you want to do, it makes it impossible for you to do it. Okay. Well, the reason that happens is because when you focus too much on it, it moves it from your being level up into your intellectual level. It begins to be something that you want to do intellectually. And when it becomes an intellectual expression of your, you know, of your, of your want or of your desire, it loses its, its, um, its energy. It loses its, its force when that happens. As long as you can keep that expression down at the being level, then everything will work fine. But if you get to where you are too focused on it, that almost always moves it up to the intellectual level. So the idea is to be able to stay focused and to keep your intent strong at the being level and not let it jump up into the intellect. Now you can Focus very intently at the being level. That takes a little more practice to do that, but you can. So you can have a very strong intent at the being level, and that won't make it impossible for it to happen. That will make it easier for it to happen. But most of us, when we start pushing on it, okay, I really want to do this. This is what I want to do. I really want to do this. That moves it up to our intellect, and that makes the whole thing sort of fizzle takes the wind out of the sails. So that's why the harder you try, you know, the, the less success you have. You don't want to try hard from the intellect. You want it to have a, a strong intent, but let that intent stay at the being level. Right. Okay, yeah, I understand. Thank you, Tom. So obviously meditation um, is an important tool um, want to reach point of consciousness, change data stream, 
do do things similar to that. Now, I was wondering, though meditation's a, a powerful tool to do things like that, um, is there anything other than meditation that you can do to achieve things such as data stream changes or anything similar to that? Yeah, well, med- meditation is, as you say, just a tool. And when you get enough experience, you can let that tool go. You don't need meditation. You can go directly from being wide awake directly to being at point consciousness, or you can even split and have a piece of you at point consciousness in another uh, data stream and a piece of you still here in this data data stream. And you don't have to meditate first to get there. So meditation is a tool. And the more familiar you get with that tool, probably after you've meditated, you know, hundred, hundreds of times, maybe a thousand times, depends on the individual, maybe only ten times if you're really, really ready for that, for it. But if you meditate enough, it'll get to the point that you don't need to meditate to get to those states. You can just intend to be there and be there. And then it gets more like teleporting than it is anything else. You just end up in a state almost instantly. So it's a tool, and it's a good tool uh, to start with, but it is a tool that you can outgrow that you don't need. And in that case, you know, most, uh, you know, most anything can, you know, can serve if, you know, as a, as a, as a meditation. Or I should say that, that any situation is, uh, a viable, a viable situation in which you can uh, achieve point consciousness. So it doesn't have to be quiet. It doesn't have to be uh, still. It doesn't have to be uh, that you're by yourself and that you're alone or that the room's dark. or All of those things are just uh, parts of the tool set. And as you get more robust in your ability to, to get into point consciousness, you can drop some of those requirements off. Some of that tools, like it has to be quiet. Uh, I can't hear other people talking. I don't, uh, you know, I don't leave the radio or TV on. Uh, I have to, uh, you know, it has to be dark. If you, those are all just parts of your tool set, and you can throw those tools away as you as you outgrow them, and eventually you throw the whole thing away. So, you know, that's kind of the basic thing with meditation. Now, there's lots of ways that you can meditate. People meditate by putting a mantra in their mind and just a sound going on in their mind. They meditate by paying attention to their breathing. They meditate by looking at candles or gazing into crystal balls or uh, um, whatever. There's lots of different techniques listening to to music, Uh, tracing a mandala with your eyes. There's countless ways to meditate, and all of them are basically accomplishing the same thing, and that is, it's a process by which you learn to let go of your physical sense data so that you're no longer processing physical sense data. It's still there, but you're just ignoring it. You're not processing it any longer. So you're not aware of your body. Your body just kind of drops outside of your awareness unless something happens that you need that awareness. Let's say a doorbell rings or a fire alarm goes off or something like that. Well, then you can hear that and you can respond to it. But otherwise, you just ignore all of that. So meditation is a neat tool, but it's only a tool. Okay, I, I understand now. Thank you, Tom. Um, so 
I was going to ask also, why is uh, a lot of things in MBT rooted in ego? So I was wondering um, if you could explain to us uh, sort of more in depth as to why everything is rooted uh, in ego and why in large amounts it's not the best thing to have. Well, ego is created out of fear. So fear, of course, is the opposite of love, and fear is kind of the thing we're trying to get rid of. So fear is the enemy. If you want to make an enemy of something, fear would be the thing that's the problem. And ego is just an expression of that fear. And belief, pretty much, is also an expression of that fear. Now, I define ego as awareness in the service of fear. So that's ego, awareness in the service of fear. And you might think immediately on hearing that, that that's a different kind of ego than what, say, Freud was talking about when he coined the word. But it's not, really. It's the same thing. Um, the Freudian sense of ego and my definition of ego, you know, is, is awareness and the service of fear are both really turn out to be the same thing. It's just that in our culture, Ego and fear are so dominant, so common, that Freud just looked, you know, he was an experimentalist, not a theorist, really. He looked at lots and lots of people, and he saw that they all had ego. And because they all seemed to be normal, which means they were like most everybody else, they were typical, average, and seemed to be getting along all right, then in Freud's mind, ego was a good thing that everybody had to have because everybody had it. So he didn't see it really as a negative thing. He saw it as just a, you know, a sense of, of self. Well, don't confuse just the sense of self with, with, uh, you know, with, with, with ego. That is part of it. It is a sense of self. That's true. But you can have a sense of self at the being level. In other words, you're aware you exist at the being level. That's fine. That's not necessarily ego. When that, when that awareness gets into the intellect and it's motivated by fear, which most of our intellectual choices are motivated by fear because we have so much fear, then that's ego and that's a problem. Well, when everybody has fear, just about everybody, let's say when 99.9999% of the population has a lot of fear, then fear and ego seem to be normal. They seem to be the way everybody is. And, of course, that's how we define okay, is if everybody's like that, and that means it's good. It's a good thing. So ego turns out, to, in the Freudian view, to not be such a bad thing. In the MBT view, we see that ego is really a manifestation of our fear. It's always about self. It's not about other. Now, Freud saw that dis the distinction between self and other, and he came up with another name when this awareness was not about self, was not self-centered, and he called that superego. And superego was about other, and he called that altruism. It was about other people, not about self. So his ego was only if it's self-focused, self-centered, about me, and it's superego 
if it's about love, if it's about caring, if it's about other people. So that's how he he um, differentiated between those two. So the ego was the self-centered one, and uh, the superego was the other-centered one. So superego is about love. Ego is about fear, and fear is the problem. So that's why ego is kind of at the root of things. If you're doing things and it's just about you, what about me? You know, what can I get? What do I need? And how can I get that? And how can I keep it? And how can I make things come out the way I want them? And how can I get my teachers to look at me the way I want them to see me? And how can I do this? And how can I do that? And you are basically putting yourself at the center of your universe, and it's all about you all the time. All your relationships are about you. All of your connections with other people, all of your, you know, the things you do are all about you, then that's not good. That does not help you grow up. That doesn't win you any points in the entropy evolution game. Um, that's a, that's a problem. It's that superego is where we want to, is where we want to go. That, uh, Freud looked at that superego and he says, well, I see it every once in a while. Occasionally people exhibit this superego, uh, capacity, but for the most part, it's mostly invisible. I don't see it in very many people, and when I do, it doesn't last very long. It's kind of a rare thing, but he did recognize that it existed. So you see the MBT idea of ego as, as uh, awareness in the service of fear, and the Freudian idea of ego, awareness in the service of self, all turn out to be the same ego. And uh, unlike Freud, uh, MBT sees that as a that's kind of the thing we need to get rid of. It's the problem. Okay. Thank you, Tom. I, I understand now. Thanks for clearing that up. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. So my next question I'd like to ask is, is it possible for consciousness to leave an avatar without the avatar knowing, but not when the avatar is dead? Okay. Now... That's a little problem there, uh, Alexander, when you say without the avatar knowing, because the avatar doesn't really exist. The avatar is just a computation. The avatar doesn't know anything. The avatar is just like the elf, and the consciousness is like the player. So can the player um, stop playing the elf without the elf knowing it? You see the problem? The elf really doesn't know anything at all. The elf is just a picture on a screen. It's just computed or rendered, as Kyle's father says. You know, it's just just rendered. So, yes, the, the uh, consciousness can stop playing the elf, and the consciousness can stop playing the avatar. And I guess that happens when you're asleep or it happens if you're in a coma. The consciousness is no longer giving the uh, avatar any instructions because the avatar is just not, uh, um, by, by according to the rule set, the avatar is no longer capable of responding to its instructions. It's like if your elf uh, gets killed in a fight, well, now you can't tell your elf to do anything because your elf is just lying there on the ground. So it no longer responds to your commands until it gets resurrected. It's that sort of thing. So that's the first part of your question. It's maybe a little misunderstanding. Now, was there another part to that? Not really. I, I, not really. I guess um, I just uh, worded it wrong. The question. Well, you can turn around and word it differently if you like. 
Well, I was just wondering when an avatar is not active, does the consciousness just leave and go to some other area in the middle of nowhere or wherever it needs to go, or does it stay inside the avatar? Okay. Um, again, it doesn't it doesn't live in the avatar, but I know what you mean. That's just a metaphor. Stay inside. It um, isn't really inside, but you mean does it stay aware, conscious? Is it is it uh, doing things? Is it doing things? Um, when the let's say when the avatar is asleep, is the conscious doing things? Well, yes. Uh, at least some of the time when the when the the uh, avatar appears to be comatose or asleep, the consciousness is often still active in a dream. Uh, so it, it then works in, in the dream world when that dream world, though, just cycles. Like every 90 minutes you go through a sleep cycle, and part of that sleep cycle is dreaming, and part of it is not. Part of it is in what's called delta sleep, where you're just unconscious. You're not dreaming. And... When it's in that part, I suspect that the what we call the free will awareness unit, which is that part of consciousness that is making the choices for that avatar, um, is probably just uh, resting. It's probably not doing much of anything. Now, the IUOC, of which that free will awareness unit is a part, it's still computing. It's still interacting. It still is, is aware all the time. It doesn't, uh, it's not attached to the avatar in any way. It's the free will awareness unit that's attached to the, to the avatar. So it continues to function and interact, maybe, uh, looking over all the, uh, choices that were just made and, and, uh, you know, whether those were good choices and doing some assessment of those choices based on choices in history to see whether the avatar is growing or, or, or not. It's, it, could continue to do that kind of analysis and thinking about the situation. and um, But the free will awareness unit only experiences what the rule set says that the avatar is doing. So if the avatar is not doing anything, then that free will awareness unit isn't getting a data stream. So it really has nothing to do at that point through those places of, of delta sleep. It just takes a break, I guess relaxes, unwinds. You might even think that it's like rebooting. You know, if your computer doesn't work and you can't figure out why, well, what we all do when we can't figure it out is we reboot. We just start it over again, you know, load everything back up again and uh, see if it doesn't work like, you know, next time. And in a sense, going to sleep, getting that delta sleep is sort of like rebooting. Because when the avatar, uh, you know, then wakes up, which means the data stream starts to flow again because now the avatar is getting sense data. So when that, when that uh, sense data starts flowing again, the consciousness probably has a whole new look at the way things are. It's sort of like a reboot. It gets to look at everything fresh again because it had a little bit of downtime. Because that, that free will awareness unit can get sometimes twisted up around its own, you know, its own uh, issues, its own thinking. Sometimes it overthinks and um, gets trapped 
in its own over-analysis of, of things. So it's good for it just to shut down every once in a while and then have to relook fresh at new data streams that are coming. So I think that's part of, of uh, what's going on there. All right. Well, thank you for that answer. So for my next question, I would like to ask, is it possible for consciousness to ever log on to, say, a robot? Ah, could a robot be conscious? Is that the... Pretty much, yeah. That's the yeah, can a robot be conscious? Well, yes, a robot could be conscious because a computer could be conscious. And a robot is just a computer with a body that doesn't really look like a desktop computer. It's a body. It's it's a computer with a body that uh, does other things, like maybe has arms and legs and fingers and hands or does something. Uh, maybe if it's in an industrial plant, all it does is smash things, but it does something. But it's really, it's, it's uh, you know, the instructions it gets come from software someplace, and that software we'll just call as part of the, the computer. But the way that works is that the computer scientists don't program in consciousness to the robot or to the computer. You can't program consciousness. It's not a, it's not something that can be programmed. What the computer scientists can do though is to create a computer or the mind of a robot, if you wish. They create it in that it has discretion as to how it answers questions. It has free will. There are multiple possibilities for the resolution of issues. And none of those are algorithmic. And we do this sometimes in things called neural networks. We can, we can kind of emulate this to some degree in a, in a thing called neural networks, which is a, which is a uh, software that learns, software that has some equations in it, uh, mostly nonlinear uh, sets of equations, and it learns how to do things, like how to recognize uh, a face. So it knows that that face belongs to Alexander. So when Alexander, when it looks at Alexander, it recognizes him and therefore lets him use the computer or opens a door or does something. See, that would be a, that would be a, a, a neural network that was programmed to do facial recognition. And the way you would train it is that you would give it thousands and thousands of pictures, but only one of those, but only one of those pictures say is Alexander. And whenever it saw Alexander, you'd say, that's, that's the one, you know, wants you to find that one. So it would look at that, and then it would see all these other pictures. And when it said, oh, that's Alexander, and it wasn't, it would say, no, you're wrong. And it would just train it. And eventually, it would get very good at picking Alexander out of a bunch of photographs. So it trains it. Now, nobody really knows exactly how it's making those choices because a bunch of equations have just been modifying themselves based on the, the rules of the neural network. And the people who made the network really don't know exactly how they've modified themselves, how it actually is working. Now, that's a very kind of simple example. But if we take something like that, that's in a kind of a, a bigger, more, uh, more degrees of freedom, and create a computer that actually has free will, can come up with choices, can learn, and makes those choices not based on an algorithm, but based on taking guesses 
intelligent guesses based on its experience. Well, now you've created a platform that an IUOC can connect to. An IUOC can create a free will awareness unit that then plays that computer as an avatar. You see, now the computer itself is the avatar. It's a virtual computer. And the consciousness can play the input, the data. Now, it's not going to be sensed. That computer is not going to get sense data like we do through our five senses. It's going to get input other ways. And it's going to take that input and make choices for it. So now you have a conscious computer. But depending on what that computer does or can do or the degree of free will, the amount of, um, um, you know, uh, what's it called? The amount of um, freedom of choice it has, the decision space that it has, then it will be able to make choices within that decision space. And now you have a, a computer that's conscious. And put that in a robot, and now you've got a conscious robot. So, yes, we actually have done that in our laboratories to some extent, but the consciousness is small. It's more like uh, the consciousness, you know, of a bug or maybe a dog. It's not yet been able to create a consciousness that it makes a good platform for a free will awareness unit that's kind of on the level of a human. We haven't done that yet, but we're working on it, and one day we will get there. So it'll be a different kind of conscious because the input's different. It'll be a different sort of data stream because it's not the same kind of sensory data that we have. And it will uh, be able to evolve by the quality of its choices just the way we do. That's a very uh, deep answer. Consciousness already. Oh, goodness. Yeah, you see, the, the way that works is is interesting because let's say we create another virtual reality, and in that virtual reality we create characters. Now, maybe it's World of Warcraft, and we create a you know a race of elves and barbarians and wizards and whatever else is in there, and we make those characters such that they have um, – like these neural nets. Now, this neural net's just a metaphor. You know, our neural nets aren't that, don't have enough degrees of freedom yet. But we, we make these uh, kinds of uh, uh, processes in our simulation that give those characters free will. Well, what would happen then is that from the larger consciousness system, IUOCs could play those characters and make those choices for them and we would then have created a virtual reality with conscious characters, you see. Not because we create consciousness, but because we create a, a, uh, a situation, a platform, an avatar that has enough free will choices to make it interesting by a piece of consciousness from the larger consciousness system. So that's how, you know, that works. And now maybe that virtual reality would one day decide to create a virtual reality, and it may have characters in it also that we're conscious. See, we're making, you know, we're making levels inside of levels inside of levels, and if that were to, it would work exactly the same way. The virtual reality and the virtual reality and the virtual reality, if it also was a system, a platform that had 
free will choices, then a piece of the larger consciousness system could play it, just like it plays our body, our avatar. So all the consciousness all comes from the same source. And none of it is manufactured by computer scientists. It's all just part of the larger consciousness system. But virtual realities can be nested. Thank you. That's neat, isn't it? That's really a cool idea, I think. All right. Um, so, Tom, um, I was going to ask. So, scientists have, uh, scientists will eventually, obviously, clone uh, animals with DNA, um, and they'll make, you know, a, a different, uh, the same animal, but a different version. So, when uh, scientists eventually get round to, uh, say, for example, cloning humans, uh, the avatar, I understand how the avatar is created, but where does a new consciousness come from exactly? Well, when they make a clone of a person, what they've done is made another um, avatar, right? So now they have another potential avatar, and a consciousness can play that. Now it can work either way. It could be just... Any consciousness can play that. You know, you have a you have an individuated unit of consciousness, and there's a potential avatar. It's a clone. It can play that. But now it's got the exact same. Um, it's it's got the exact same avatar to work with. Okay. Now, when it has the exact same avatar, does it have that avatar's memory? No. All you did is grow another physical thing. The memory isn't in the brain. The memory is in the consciousness. You haven't cloned the consciousness. You've only cloned the body. So it's not going to have the same memory. You see, it's going to be a new avatar, a new consciousness playing that avatar. Now, could that same consciousness that's playing, that played the, the original, the host, the one that got cloned, could that consciousness be duplicated? to also play that second avatar. Yes, that's possible. Again, it's a digital system. Almost anything's possible. You could take that free will awareness unit, copy it, paste it, make another one, and let that then play the cloned avatar. Then you would have a cloned avatar that had all the memory and all of, all of uh, its, its originals thoughts and, and uh, experiences. So it's possible for the system to do that either way. Again, almost anything's possible, you know, in a virtual reality. But I suspect that the, that the system, you know, may not want to duplicate that free will awareness unit. They may want to just let that avatar be open to uh, another another consciousness. And if they did, it would be like fraternal twins, not identical twins. You know, it would be like um, two different uh, consciousnesses in, in two bodies, and the bodies were physically identical. But before long, those bodies would, would, uh, would start to become a little different if they had a different consciousness in it, because consciousness leads, the body follows. They, they begin to evolve on their own different paths. Now, if they did a copy and paste of the free will, free will awareness unit that was in the first, then they would stay similar longer 
and they diverge a little bit anyway over time. Uh, I'm sure twins, identical twins do too. They have different experiences. They will diverge a little bit over, over time. So it could go either, it could go either way. And uh, until we do that, we really won't know exactly how the larger consciousness system will decide to do it. But they will decide to do it in one of those particular ways, and then they will always do it that way, trying to keep this reality consistent. Okay, I understand now. Thank you, Tom. That was so an interesting style. Thank you. I had never thought about that before, but uh, that's an interesting question. Go ahead, Alexander. So my next question is to ask you, what is entropy? Okay, entropy is a measure of disorder. So if you have order, if you have structure, then there is information in that structure. Any structure contains information because structure means things have to relate to each other in a very specific way. And the specific ways of that relationship that create structure is information, the way those things relate to each other. So if you have, um, you know, if you have a bunch of uh, change, you know, you've been saving your pennies, dimes, nickels, and quarters, and you have a big jar full of them, well, they're constrained in the jar, and they have less entropy by being constrained in that jar than if you just dump the jar upside down and let them fall all over your floor. Now they would have higher entropy, more disorder, because they'd be scattered all over the place. But if you took all of them and put them in piles, put all the, put all the pennies in the same pile and put all the dimes in the same pile, now they would have less entropy. And then if you went back through those piles and arranged them all so that all the dimes and pennies all had the heads up in that position, now they would have a little less entropy. But that that the difference in entropy would be kind of meaningless because you'd still just have stacks of coins. You see, it wouldn't matter too much. But in the system, there would be more order. So that's what entropy is. Now, when we look at information systems, we have, a, let's say, a computer. And let's say the computer has, you know, 100 million bits that it can rearrange in some way. If all those bits are random, then there's no information in that computer. If you structure those bits into some pattern, any way you structure them, there's now information. But if you structure them uh, in a way that has meaning and significance, like you structure them in a way that uh, uh, lets you add or subtract or multiply, lets you do math or lets you, uh, um, you know, recognize words, lets you spell, now you have different kinds of patterns, and what that does is lowers entropy. So entropy is just a measure of disorder. That's why as we evolve to more and more uh, capability, more and more personal power, more and more decision space, that's more and more structure and order. Therefore, these are lower entropy states. So growing up, evolving is a lower entropy state. De-evolving is returning to a higher entropy state. And in our own physical evolution, it works the same way. So if you take single-celled things and look at their entropy, and then if some of those single-celled things 
kind of get together and form multi-celled things or begin to create multi-celled things, that multi-celled thing is a lower entropy structure. It's more complex. It's got more parts. It uh, can do more. And that generally in our virtual reality makes it more survivable because it has more degrees of freedom or, if you will, can make more choices. It's more complex. So it's more flexible. So it's the same in our physical evolution. Things that uh, lower their entropy tend to be more survivable, more capable of uh, continuing on. Things that, are, that decrease their entropy, I mean that increase their entropy, become simpler and simpler. In our physical world, they tend to have less structure, higher entropy, and can't do as much. Another way of looking at entropy besides saying that it's a measure of disorder, it's a measure of an of ability of a system to do work, to do something. Okay, if your system can't do anything at all, then that's very high entropy. If your system actually can do something, that requires structure. That requires order to do something. It requires relationship, and the relationship is information. So that's another way to, to look at it. So the lower your entropy, the more you can do, the more, the more um, you can affect things. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, Tom, um, I was wondering if this was um, an objective reality, would uh, time, time dilation still, still occur? Time dilation occurs because it's a logical consequence of the rule set. Okay. Matter of fact, it's a logical consequence of this being a virtual reality. Because it's a virtual reality, it has a speed limit. All virtual realities have speed limits, and that is that you can move one pixel of distance for every pixel of time. So every time the delta t increments by one delta t, you're allowed to move a pixel of distance. You're not allowed to move two pixels of distance for one delta t because now you're teleporting. You're jumping from one place to another. So continuous smooth motion requires one pixel per delta t. That's as fast as anything can move through the system. You can't have anything moving through the system and still have a, a consistent uh, uh, continuous-looking kind of virtual reality. So that's a speed limit. Now, as soon as you get a speed limit that's, that's fixed, that has a logical consequence of time dilation, of length contraction, of all those uh, special relativity artifacts. Uh, you have, as you approach that maximum speed, your mass increases. The time slows down, and length in the direction of travel gets smaller. Okay, so all three of those things happen, and they're just a logical consequence of having a speed limit. So if you if you look up uh, special relativity on on Google, you will find some equations that start with one assumption, and that is that the speed of light is a constant. That is, it's a speed limit, and from there, it's just really a little algebra 
that will take you to the result that there is uh, time dilation, length contraction, and that mass increases. So all of those things are logical consequences of speed of light being a constant, which is a consequence of this being a virtual reality. Okay. Thank you, Tom. <clears throat> um, I have another question for you. Um, I was looking at the MBT forums uh, months back, and uh, I saw this post, um, and someone was concerned about MBT turning into what is effectively a religion. Um, would you know, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it will it could potentially end up like that? And if so, what would be the consequences of it? Well, <laughs> that's a that is that's a good question. And in fact, now maybe I shouldn't say that, but in in fact, you know, it, in a way, it has ended up like that in a particular instance and that is I've just been made aware of a group of people who have gotten together they have written uh, and filled out applications to the IRS that's the uh, that's the tax people in the US to get uh, to, to be given the status of a church and this church is a church based on MBT principles basically it's based on virtual reality virtual reality principles so there already is in the world a church of the virtual reality, if you will, or uh, you know, a church that's that is uh, based on MBT principles. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, I suspect the answer is that it gives you certain special tax advantages if you if you have that status, and that probably is what they had in mind. But in any case, they hold they in order to qualify. They have to hold services regularly. They have to have a congregation, and uh, they have to meet those requirements in order to maintain their status as a, um, um, I'm not sure of what the, the legal status is, but it's basically of a, an organization that has very favorable tax considerations. It's like a, uh, a, a nonprofit corporation, but it's a little different than a nonprofit in the sense that it is nonprofit, but it's also uh, a religious organization. So there's there's part of your answer. Inevitably, some people will want to see it that way and will want to go there. And there's nothing anybody can do to prevent that because that's just the way people are. They will see that. They tend to think in terms of of um, organization rather than just individuals. So they will have meeting groups, and they will get together, and they will discuss things like MBT and virtual reality and, and uh, lowering entropy. And eventually they'll see there's a tax advantage for their organization to be a church. And there you have it. There's going to, you know, that's going to pop up from time to time. All right. Now, you know, what do I think of it? Well, I'm not interested in doing anything like that. That to me, is not the right way to go. But if other people want to do that, well, they don't have to ask my permission. Anybody can do that. It's a, you know, that's a freedom that uh, they have to form a, a religious uh, group around any set of ideas they want to. And I wouldn't deny them that. So, yes, MBT will, will wander down that path, no doubt. 
because people will take it there. But I have no interest in doing that because in my mind, as soon as it becomes an organization like that, then it doesn't take too long before dogma starts to build up behind it. Then there's the right interpretation and the wrong interpretation and the right way to see these. And there's the people who are in charge and the people who just come in the door and give money. And the people in charge know more about what's right than the people that just come through the door and give money. And it gets to be a, a hierarchy of who's more pure than the other. It gets to be a, um, you know, uh, creeds come up and dogmas come up. Now, probably not originally, but, you know, in time, in time, things like that have a way of becoming more about the organization than they have about the actual reason the organization was put together. So the organization takes on a life of its own, and pretty soon, if you've got to meet, then you've got to have a building. If you've got to have a building, you need resources, and somebody owns it, and um, somebody has the right to sell it. And all of that, to me, just gets in the way of the idea of lowering entropy and, and uh, growing up. Some people find that venue to be helpful. They like being part of a group. It, it's difficult for them to grow up on their own, outside of a group, individually. It suits them to be a member of a group. And for that reason, uh, these, these uh, virtual reality churches will probably serve a need. Hopefully they won't grow into uh, stultified uh, you know, bastions of dogma that create more trouble than they do good. But uh, they could do some good. Yes, many people need that sort of thing. So I'm not for it or against it in that sense as far as other people doing it, but I am very against it as far as me doing it. I'm not interested in that role. Uh, I don't want to go there personally. So uh, you won't find me the head of any of these organizations because that's not really what I want to do. But there are going to be organizations, and probably dozens of them, and they'll probably be, um, you know, scrap, you know, uh, scrapping with each other. You know, no, I'm interpreting it this way. Yeah, you're wrong. I'm interpreting it this way, and who knows? You know, you may have sex, and uh, the sex may not even like each other. Hopefully, they'll never, uh, they'll, <laughs> they'll never get to the point where they have wars with each other. You know, like the Catholics and the Protestants did. You know, for a hundred years or so. Um, anyhow, yeah, I'm uh, personally not interested in going that route because I see that organization has its downfall. Organization like that can start to become more important than the ideas and the concepts that were there in the first place. So I will avoid it, but... Um, I'm neither for it nor against it as other people want to do it because I see that it will serve a good purpose for some people. They will get more if they can do it in a group than if they have to do it alone, they just won't be able to do it. So it will serve a purpose. Right. Um, so I understand you don't want to get involved with it, but do you think that uh, in a way it could become advantageous to MV MVT because it's in a way sort of getting the word out there. If you see churches around and things like that, it might it could potentially get the word out there about MBT. Or do you yes. think it's 
No, it could. And as long as that word doesn't come with any dogma attached to it, then it would be useful. As much as that word starts becoming dogmatic, then it's not so useful anymore. So it just depends on the organizations. But in general, just because you have an organization, you know, isn't a bad thing. It could be a good thing. They have a tendency over the long haul, and by long haul, I mean thousands of years, they have a tendency to turn into dogmatic, you know, rigid thought thought processes where you everybody that's in this organization kind of agrees on this reality and people in other organizations agree on a different reality and they fight with each other. They don't uh, get along very well because each sees themselves as the bastion of truth and sees the other one as the bastion of, of you know, misunderstanding. So that sort of thing is not helpful. But as long as they stay open, as long as they have little hierarchy, as long as it's about the message, then that probably is a good idea. Um, things that are good ideas can, over time, turn into bad ideas. You know, that happens. And who knows what will happen. You know? But if they stay good ideas, then, yes, it could have a positive, uh, you know, it could have a positive influence if, indeed, it stays a positive organization. And so far, the, the one that I have heard of that has done this it doesn't really mention MBT. It just mentions virtual reality. So it's not really MBT associated. It's um, just a church of, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a virtual reality church. And um, it seems to be very open, and it seems to not have any dogma or anything like that. It seems to be just a bunch of people getting together who see a bigger picture. And that's a good thing. So it's not really a problem. Right. Whether it ever becomes a problem in a thousand years, who knows? Right, right. Um, so I was also wondering, um, obviously people go about their lives, uh, you know, believing that this place is uh, physical and only physical, which is understandable, you know, they're, they're brought up uh, around it. But obviously when people receive nudges, is it, for a reason? Does the LCS do it for a reason? Is it to expand you know, their, their knowledge? Is it, or is it just sort of random? Does it sort of do it randomly, or is there a reason for it? It almost always is a reason. Uh, I suspect there could be some randomness uh, involved, but not often. Mostly it's a reason. These kinds of nudges come to people who can use them, who have a, a a good probability they're ready to take that nudge and do something profitable with it. And the system sees that and they get that nudge because it looks like it might give them an opportunity to, to give them a set of choices that are good learning choices. So I don't think the system spends a lot of time nudging people who aren't ready to, you know, make the choices that the nudge gives them. It wouldn't be a good. It wouldn't be a good use of resources for it to do that. It would be a much better uh, use of resources if it nudged people who were ready to learn from that nudge. Although people are slow, sometimes you have to nudge them ten times before they finally get it, and the system may be patient that way, you know. But it's still it. It I think has done the calculation that there is a good probability that these nudges will help lower entropy, and that's why they, 
the system does it. Right, right, okay. Thank you for your answer, Tom. That that get things up. All right. <clears throat> so this question I've really been looking forward to asking you. How could we explain the Mandela effect? Or is the Mandela effect some sort of nudge? Could you answer that question? Okay. Now, there is a thing called the Mandela effect that has to do with it appears that things seem to change, that facts seem to change over time. That, you know, 50 years ago, that this is the way it is, and now it's different. Okay. Now, there can be a couple of reasons, you know, why that might happen. The obvious reasons would be from the group of people that would say, well, the Mandela effect is just poor memory. See, that's one reason that you haven't captured, you know, you don't have good memory about what took place. You remember it being this way, but it really wasn't. That was just the way you thought of it. And that uh, is easily explained in the sense that we all live in our own reality. There is not just this one objective reality that we all live in. That's kind of the materialistic viewpoint. Well, in a virtual reality, everybody lives in their own personal reality. So for you, it might have been that way in your personal reality, but it doesn't mean that that's the way it was in anybody else's personal reality. So the fact that you see that it's changed doesn't necessarily mean that something that was a general objective fact to the, you know, to, for everybody has now changed to a different objective fact for everybody. It could just mean that something that was a fact for you now is not a fact for you. And that has to do with you and your own reality. So that's a, that's one issue that we have. We live in our own reality. It's not really an objective world. Okay. The second thing is other than just we don't have very good memories, and it's it's clear. Lots of research shows that people remember all sorts of things that never happened. You know, we have a lot of uh, research on on uh, people who swear in court that so and so, you know, did these awful things to them. You know, molested them or did some other sort of thing. They'll swear to that in court, and then find out later that it really never happened. That the evidence shows that all of that testimony didn't happen, and that person really wasn't line in the sense they believed that all that had happened to them. And there's numerous cases where that takes place, where people have very strong beliefs about the way things were. And as it turns out, they're wrong. Even though they were there, they experienced it. This was their, you know, their experience. These horrible things were done to them by this person. And it turns out that all that was wrong. So where do these beliefs come from? Well, they mostly come from fear. If you have fear, this fear can express itself in terms of beliefs, just like ego, and those beliefs can be just as real as anything, whether they ever happened or not. They can seem to be perfectly real. You believe it. You create the belief because that belief suits your fear. It satisfies your fear. It helps you not have to deal with the fear. That's where that that uh, bad memory comes from. Okay, so we have these kinds of things that makes the Mandela effect look a little squishy, not quite uh, what people think it is. On the other hand, 
to the other side of the coin. If the, you know, the system can nudge us in all sorts of ways. The system can give us experiences that are totally unexplainable in any other way other than realizing that this is not a materialistic reality and the strangest things can happen here. Well, one way of nudging us might just be the Mandela effect, where things used to be this way, you know, and now they're not. And that's just kind of a wake-up call in the sense that reality isn't as buttoned down and objective as you think. That could be a wake-up call, just a general wake-up call. Another thing that fits in that category are things like crop circles. You know, where do crop circles come from? Well, the scientists that I have read that have gone there to study them, mostly they go there very skeptical, thinking it's a hoax of some sort, and they're going to prove that, you know, what the hoax is. Well, after being there for six months or so or a year, they come back saying, eh, could never prove a hoax. Besides that, there's all this other information that says it's real. It's not a hoax. These things just appear seemingly out of nowhere. Well, how could that be? Again, the larger consciousness system can create anything it wants. It can create these things that just don't make sense just as a wake-up call, just to say, hey, folks, this reality is a lot stranger than you think. You need a bigger picture because your little picture of it being a, a materialistic reality just doesn't fit the facts anymore. That happens a lot to people. I know a lady whose mother died like uh, a de uh, like I think it was like 10 days earlier, and she got a phone call from her mother who had died 10 days earlier. And the mom talks to her in the mom's voice and says some things to her and tells her she's okay. And from the phone call, it was obviously her mom. But how does a mom that's been dead for 10 days call you on the telephone? You see, well, the system can do anything it wants. It's a virtual reality. And in that case, it was not only a wake-up call for the lady, but it was also to put her mind at ease that her mom was okay, that her mom was doing fine. She needn't stress or worry about, you know, her mom anymore. Let the mom go. The mom's now on another, another adventure doing something else. No need to worry. So it was helping that person lower their entropy. And the system does a lot of things like that. But again, it's not random. It picks people that it'll make a difference to. A survey of people, of random people, the question was asked, have you ever had a paranormal experience? And these paranormal experiences are basically experiences where things happen that otherwise seem to be impossible. And people can't explain them normally. That's why they call them paranormal. Okay, And they had about 75 to 80% of the people said, yes, I have had such an experience. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot of people having those experiences. Now, some of those people will just ignore it. Some will swear that they, you know, must be insane. Some will um, uh, start uh, uh, Googling, uh, you know, things like that. They become seekers trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> what went on here, why, and it helps them uh, grow up. The system does a lot of that sort of, of uh, makes odd things happen just to wake people up. So the Mandela effect 
if it is so, if there really is a Mandela effect, it could be something like that, just something to shake people up and show them that reality is not just a buttoned-down material place, that strange things happen. If there is no Mandela effect, then it's just people who have beliefs. It was part of their reality, but it's not necessarily a part of the shared reality. And that, uh, or it could just be faulty memory. For some reason, they just remembered it a way different than it is, than it is now. So it could be any of those things. I haven't, and the reason I'm being so if it's this or if it's that is I don't think enough serious research has been done to really know. It's more of a, an effect that people just kind of have been talking about, so on, but I haven't seen any serious research where people have really tried to run these things to ground and see if changes have taken place or not. So uh, it's all very hypothetical at this point. But I can see that it could be either way. There's some explanations for it, no matter which way it works out. That's because a virtual reality is a very flexible tool. It's a very flexible system. All sorts of things can be possible here, and that's why we have to stay skeptical of everything, because you never really know whether something's true or not. You almost never have all the information. Unless there's some really good research done, I'd say everybody should be skeptical of the Mandela effect. But that doesn't mean that I'm saying it doesn't exist or isn't real. Just that skepticism is always necessary until the facts come in. And facts aren't made just because somebody remembers it. Research needs to run deeper than that. Thank you, Tom. That was a very good explanation. So for my next question, I would like to ask, what happens to consciousness when someone is in a coma? Well, consciousness isn't in a coma, just the avatars in the coma. Consciousness still exists, but it's waiting for input. So it's, um, it's like this. You're playing, you're playing an elf in World of Warcraft, and suddenly your screen goes blank. You're no longer getting data. You're no longer getting any information. What do you do? Well, <laughs> you probably try to fix the problem, right? You, uh, if you were playing World of Warcraft, you'd probably, uh, you know, reboot your computer or something like that, try to log back in. But in this case, that's not an option. You are just consciousness and you're sitting there and your screen goes blank. No more data coming down the data stream. What do you do? Well, you probably wait for a while, see if any data is going to come down the data stream. Eventually, if no data does, you go someplace else. You leave. You uh, figure you'll have to go play some other game because this one isn't working anymore. So that happens, and the consciousness might leave. Body gets revived. The consciousness may have to come back. But it may not stay there. It depends on what the, the individuated unit of consciousness wants to do. Do they want to terminate that connection? They want to wait for a while to see what happens? Um, they can probably get a good reading on future probability of whether that person's ever going to wake up or not. If the probability is they might wake up, then they probably wait and see what happens. 
the probability is they'll never wake up, then they go on. Let that free will awareness unit go and go on and do something else with it. Good explanation. All your explanations are just, how does this guy know this? <laughs> it's crazy how one person like you just knows all of this. You can just express it and help people know what's really going on. Well, I hope it wouldn't disappoint you to tell you that I just make it up. <laughs> but I'm just laughing But I make it up based on on an understanding of the nature of reality and how it works according to the MBT model. Now you know it's just a model, and I tell people don't confuse a model of reality with reality. So I look at my model, and since it's my model, I know it pretty well. I know all the ins and outs and the details pretty well. So when you ask a question, I just look and see how does the model, how does the logic that question and then it just you know then that just flows out so that's the that's the thing once you understand the model then the answers to all these questions uh, kind of flow but again stay skeptical just because I tell you something isn't a good reason to believe it because I tell you something you can look at it and say well that's possible I can see the logic in that if this is a virtual reality it might work that way but I'll still keep my mind open for other things. That's always the way to be, is to keep your mind open for other things. Don't, uh, don't believe. Just be skeptical and keep these thoughts as some, some sense of probability. It might, life might be this way. It might be a virtual reality like this, and that seems to explain a whole lot of things that otherwise aren't explained. But just let it go at that. Learn to live gracefully with uncertainty. Having this idea that you have to know for certainty what the answer is is what gets us into trouble because then we end up with a belief because there's really never enough information to know for sure. It's just what works. And with what works, you can say, well, if I had to bet, I'll bet on what works. But if I don't have to bet, <laughs> I'll just uh, you know, remain skeptical and see how it unfolds. So that's the best way to, to go about it. So we're just extrapolating logic from the model to your questions. And all of these are based on a model of reality, not necessarily on the way reality is. But so far, the model's been very good. And if the model tends to answer a lot of questions about reality, then we tend to think the model is a pretty good descriptor, a pretty good metaphor for that reality that allows us to produce good answers. That's the that's the point of it. Thank you. Thank you. Um so Tom, I was gonna ask you, um, why are people that are like more evolved, uh, if not for better phrasing, so with lower ego and more experience, sent or decide to go into realities that are more evolved than they are is there a reason for that well sure you evolve to become love love is about other other are those people that you can help evolve the whole point of this game is to evolve the quality of your consciousness to become love and if you care about other 
then your job is never done until all the others have grown up. So as long as there's lots of people who need help who aren't too grown up, then the people who have grown up are going to try to be helpful. They're going to try to put themselves in a position where they can help those people because it's about other. You say, so that's why that happens. And as you grow up, you know, in the, in the beginning of growing up, it's pretty much about you in the sense you're trying to get rid of your fear. You're trying not to, uh, you know, not to have buttons that other people can push that, you know, make you get angry or upset. You try to get rid of the fear, get rid of the ego. You try to become authentic, and you're working on these things. And it is kind of more self-focused. But eventually, as you move down that path and you do get rid of some fear and you do get rid of some ego, then you automatically start seeing other people as being significant and being important. And you see yourself as sometimes being able to help them because you've been there where they are. You've had that fear. You can understand where they're coming from. And you'd like to be able to be helpful to them. So what turns out to be kind of self-focused in the beginning eventually turns out to be other-focused the more that you're successful at getting rid of the fear. So that's why you would come back to a place that was uh, less evolved just because it uh, that's, that's what you do because that's how you express your caring. Okay, thank, thank you, Tom. Um, I was going to ask you another question. Um, so why do people uh, tend to be uh, sort of sheep and tend to follow what other people are doing and saying and their actions? Is there a reason for that? Why do people tend to follow others? Is that your question? Yeah. yeah. Well, humans are... Um, social animals, and social animals tend to follow each other, you know, like herd animals. Herd animals are social animals, and the herd always sort of hangs together. The herd sets up standards as things that are different to that herd means danger. So if they see anything that's unusual, then they... They run, and when some of them run, all of them run. You know, well, that's the way it is with people. We're social animals as well, and we set up these standards and these ideas of what is normal and what might be hurtful and, and what is good. And when somebody laughs, everybody laughs. When somebody cries, you know, everybody gets kind of sad. So we tend to, we tend to interact with, with others in a way that, that, uh, keeps us as part of that herd, part of that group. That's part of our, our culture. And it works that way for all groups. Group Groups have their own uh, group mind, if you will. All of the people who associate themselves with a particular group tend to act in similar ways. So if you are a member of, you know, the Boy Scouts, then that will tend to change the way you see things in reality a little bit. You'll see things through that that lens. Uh, if you are a member of a particular country or of a particular political or social organization, you'll tend to see things. You will begin to interpret your reality in terms of the 
principles and qualities of of the group that you are in. You'll tend to wear clothes like the people in your group. You will tend to, you know, and if you wear clothes different than the people in your group, the people in your group may, you know, uh, push you away because you're not cool any longer or you're not this or you're not that or you're not high enough class or you're not low enough class or whatever. You don't fit in anymore. People want to fit in, so they tend to do what everybody else does. It's a herd mentality that we tend to uh, want to fit in and do what everybody else does. So some people are very much want to do their own thing. They tend to be loners. They tend to be individuals. They not, they're not followers. They think for themselves, and that's a personality type. And there's others that really don't want to do that. There's others that it's very important to them what other people think of them. It's very important to them of their social status. Very important to them how they fit in to their groups that they belong to. And others, it's just not important at all. They couldn't care less about what people think of them. So we have all sorts of people, but in general, in a social system like we have, in a social animal like humans or like cattle or, you know, like, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of social animals around, they generally set kind of standards for themselves and everybody follows the standards and those that don't follow the standards are usually pushed out of the group they're outcasts so conformity is part of our being a social animal we tend to conform to those that are around us some people more than others some people uh, are more comfortable letting other people make their decisions for them. That way they don't have to feel responsible if it goes wrong. They'd rather do what other people say, and then if it doesn't work out, they can blame it on those other people. They don't have to take any responsibility for it. So you have some of that as well. So there's lots of reasons why people are followers, and some people are leaders. It's a personality difference, but because we're social animals, we tend to have, uh, the, 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 tend to have the concept of following and conforming is just part of the way we are, because that's in when we were growing up in, what, 200,000 years ago, the, the tribe had to conform, had to work together, had to all pull in the same direction, otherwise nobody would survive. Well, that's not true anymore, but we're still stuck with those kinds of genes that uh, kind of push us into a into uh, conformity often in our thinking and our dress and in our values. It's called culture. Right, right. Okay, I uh, understand that, Tom. Thanks for, thanks for clearing it up. So, I've got another question for you, Tom. Why aren't we, why aren't we born into this VR knowing it's a VR? Isn't it easier to play the game if you know the rules? Uh, well, no. It's easier to play the game if you know the rules, yes. But it's also easier to game the game. In other words, it's easier to cheat if you know the rules. So one of the reasons that we come here without any memory is because if we did have memory and we did understand the game from the beginning, we would tend to act in a way that was appropriate for the game. In other words, we might act kind and act caring. 
but it wouldn't help us be kind and be caring. If we had that intellectual component, we would come here and know what it was we were supposed to do, and we would probably act out those, those roles without actually ever growing up and becoming it. So what happens is when we come here, we come here with nothing but the quality that we've earned in previous lives. So we have all the quality that we've learned in all the previous lives, and now we have to apply it. We have to make choices. So we have to express that quality in our choices. And by the choices we make, we can get greater quality or we can devolve our quality. But we start just with quality, and our expressions of our quality is honest and from the being level, if we don't know anything about it, you see, if we're, if we're not intellectually tuned into that, then it's an honest expression of who we are. We're, we're authentic when we get here without any memory. We just are how we are. We don't start getting non-authentic and start putting on, uh, um, you know, images until later. As we get a lot older, we have that problem. But then that creates a big problem for us. We don't know who our our authentic self is. And if you don't know who you, your authentic self is, how can you change yourself? You start to lose who you are, lose your authenticity. You no longer can change. It makes it very hard to get rid of fear if you don't even know that you have the fear and you deny it, you don't own it. So anyway, it's much to our advantage to come here and just be authentic than it is to come here and try to do what we think we should without ever changing ourselves and becoming what we should be. So that's the difference. And then there's a practical aspect, too. If you came here with all the memories from your past lives, you would be overburdened with information. You'd have, you know, tens of thousands of children and wives and husbands and, and um you know, parents and all these people that you that you have very strong, loving ties with, and uh, you have all of the stuff you know, that would be uh, really hard to deal with all that if you had that kind of depth to your memory. It would get kind of confusing who you were. You wouldn't, hard to separate all that deep memory. So it's better just to create that from from the start here and then work with that than it is to somehow juggle all that memory. So that's a practical uh, reason why. But I think the fundamental reason is that we need a fresh start. We don't want to bring all those, uh, um, all those beliefs, all those fears with us. We want a fresh start where we can just be ourselves and express the way we are. And by that expression, evolve or de-evolve. That's a much cleaner way to you know, to start out another uh, another lifetime than encumbered with all sorts of problems. Thank you, Tom. That was a very, very good answer. Carl and I are just talking and um, never really thought it like that ever. So thanks for that. Um. So, Tom, I, I was wondering if you could explain uh, to us... Exactly. How flexible is the rule set? How uh, how far uh, can you push it? If not, for better phrasing, is there is there a lot of 
restriction, um, I'm going to obviously assume that it depends on if there are people watching, but providing you're alone, uh, because of plausible deniability, how far can you uh, push the rule set? How far can you break it? Well, if you're alone, it depends on, you know, and you want to modify future probability. So you're alone and you're sitting in your chair and, and uh, there's a table in front of you and you'd like that table to float up off the ground but be about, you know, four or five feet in the air. You'd like to levitate the table. So that would be changing future probability. In the future, the table won't be on the ground. It will be above the ground. Okay, now the rule set says, you know, gravity isn't going to let that happen. So can you provide enough enough, uh, what should we call it, um, you know, can you change the probability that much that you can overcome that gravitation? Well, it depends on how much power you've got. It depends on how much energy you can develop at the being level, how tightly you can focus on it. But it also develop, it also depends on whether or not the larger consciousness think, system thinks that that, that that outcome, that the table floats, that you levitate it, what is that going to do to you in the long term? How is it going to change entropy? The system can look at that and say, well, if he does this, oh, he's going to get a swelled head. He's going to think he's really something special. He's going to start uh, showing off. He's going to do this and that. It's really a bad idea because it's just going to raise his entropy, not lower it. Well, then the system is not going to allow that because it just may put an end to it. If you can just muster that much energy to overcome gravity, then the system may just let that go, or it may just help you and levitate the table for you just because it may make you double down on your efforts to learn more and to grow up and get rid of more fear, and it would be a really good thing for you to experience. You see? So it depends. Now, if it's just without the system either helping or hurting your efforts, it's just a matter of how much you can do to cause an effect, right? What's the probability that that table will float? Well, it's a pretty low probability. So you're going to have to be awfully good to change it, or you're going to have to have some help from the system. That's the way it is. But, yes, you can push rules pretty far if, by pushing them, it helps you grow up. If it's just something that, you know, inquiring egos want to know, I just want to see if I can do it, wouldn't that be cool? Well, that's not going to be something that was going to get the system to help you. They're not going to try to help you to feel cool. That's probably an entropy increaser, not an entropy decreaser. So if it really is going to affect you in the long term, positively, the system might cooperate. If not, the system will probably just let it go and see if you can do it by yourself. So there's a, a, a wide range. We have this eye uncertainty principle that um, you kind of took that out of the mix when you said you were going to do it by yourself. But if you're by yourself, then that's really the thing. Do you have the power to change things that much or not? Now, there's a there's a guy called uh, Edward Teller. He's Dr. Edward Teller. He's a physicist, actually. 
and he has uh, videos of an experiment that he does where he has a, a man try to raise the pH of a beaker of water. And he takes the water and he takes it right out of a spigot and he sits it on a table and the guy's sitting on the other side of the table and he measures the pH and of course the water, if it's like most water, it's probably just slightly acidic. Not almost neutral, but a little bit to the acid side is typical water out of a tap. And then you'll have that guy try to make it more acid and more acid and more acid. And eventually he can move it quite a bit. A lot, maybe a one whole pH number, like from 7-0 down to 6-0. Well, that's a pretty big change. A glass of water just sitting there by itself isn't going to just suddenly go to 6-0 when you stick your litmus paper in it or do your measurement. That's pretty unusual. And the way he does that is he does it in stages because there's, there's uh, molecular things going on in the water where OHs and H pluses are combining and recombining and the water is coming apart and not it's some of that's going on at a very very low level and that uncertainty is something that he can manipulate with his intent so he can manipulate that uncertainty and it moves it just a little tiny bit maybe a point zero one on that uh, on that acid base scale but then he can move it another zero one and another one and another one and then he'll let that stabilize and then another one and another one and another one and eventually by by walking it down a little bit at a time within the uncertainty that he has, he can make a make a dramatic change in the pH. Well there he's done something that you know he's performed a miracle. He has made a glass of water change the pH by a whole digit. Or he can go the other way. He can make it more base. So from just slightly acid, it can go up to be a, you know, an 8 in pH over time. Not quickly, because he has to work within the uncertainty that nature gives him. And miracles like that can be done. But now some people could do that more easily than others. Someone who practices at that can get much better at it. Somebody who can work at the being level will be much better at it. Somebody who doesn't have a noisy mind will be much better at it, you see. Somebody who puts more time in it will be better at it, and somebody just does it once. So there's lots of things that make a difference as to how much you can do. But you can do those kinds of things uh, pretty easily, as long as there's some uncertainty. Now, making a table float up in the air, there's not a lot of uncertainty to work with there. That is a more difficult thing to do because tables don't just jiggle around off the floor. You know, they're kind of there all the time. So you don't have any uncertainty to work with. So that's a much, much harder thing to do, which is why it probably will rely on the system working with you to do that. Right, right. Uh, thank you, Tom. That, uh, that did clear things up for me. So I've got another question for you, Mr. Tom. Why do you take your beliefs and fears with you in the event you change a data stream? Okay, when you change a data stream, you are still you, right? You are still you, and you still have only the set of experiences that you've experienced with that last avatar. So you are, you know, your avatar is Alexander. And when Alexander then 
goes out of body, leaves this data stream, goes to another data stream, your consciousness, your free will awareness unit that is playing your Alexander avatar is limited to that knowledge. That's the only knowledge and experience it has. You see, it came in blank. It came in with nothing other than its quality. It didn't have any other constructs at all. All of the constructs it has now in its awareness, in its consciousness, is what it's learned by being Alexander. So now when Alexander moves to a different uh, data stream, that free will awareness unit still has Alexander's knowledge, Alexander's fear, Alexander's uh, uh, understanding is all it has to work with because that's all it's got. It came in blank except for quality. So that's why when you go from data stream to data stream, you still have that same uh, set of information that you take with you wherever you go. And you're still making choices based on that same set of information. So that's why, you know, that's why you take it with you. Just because you get out of body doesn't make you a different person. You're the same person. You're just now aware in a different reality frame. Thank you for that answer, Tom. Very, uh, very good and very straightforward. So, Tom, um, I was wondering if you could explain to us um, why our egos are so self-centered and so so selfish. You know, it's always it's always about me, and then and then it's about others. Why why are our egos like that, and why were they? Why, why did they turn out like that? Okay, that's just sort of by definition. Uh, you have fear, okay? Fear is always about self. If you have fear, then it's self-focused. Fear is a, is a personal thing, right? It's about you. Your fear is about you. Um, even if you have a fear about somebody else, oh, I have fear that, you know, my father's going to step in a hole, you know, and hurt himself, you know. Well, that's not a fear, you know, that, that's still your fear. If your father fell in a hole and hurt himself, that would be a bad thing for you, right? Because now he can't go to work, and now he doesn't get paid, and now, you know, there's issues, and he's miserable, and he's pain, and you don't want that for him because it's your father, and so on. So it's really about you. It's not really about others. So fear is about self. So if fear is about self, then ego is defined as an awareness in the service of fear. So that's an awareness in the, you know, in the service of about self. So ego, just by definition, is always about yourself. Okay. Now the superego that Freud talked about, that's not about self. That's about other. But the superego is not fear-based. The superego is love-based. It cares about other. Now, the superego could also say it doesn't want your father to fall in a hole. That could be superego saying that, caring about other. You wouldn't want him to be hurt just because you care about him and you don't want him to be hurt. So you can have both of those going on at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. People are a mixture of love and fear. And some of their intents are fear-based, some of them are love-based, some of them are self-centered, some of them are not. 
people are a whole mixed bag of all of that stuff. Typically, we have a lot more fear than we do have have uh, love. Typically, there's more ego than there is super ego. Uh, but that's what we're here for is to change that balance around the other way. So there's a whole lot more super ego than than ego. But it's it's just by definition, ego is a problem because it's defined to be in service of fear. It's it's about self. It's about you. And as long as it's always about yourself, then it's not, you know, it, you're not, it's not love. Love is not about self. Love is about other. Now, people may, you may hear people say, well, before you can love other, you got to love yourself. That's really not a good way to express it. That's a metaphor. And what they mean is that you can't really love other people if you don't like yourself. If you really think that you're an awful person, then you don't have much to give because you don't feel like there's anything of value to give there. It makes it so you don't reach out to people. You don't give much to people because you don't feel like you've got anything that's worthy. You feel if you reached out to give to people, they just spurn you or push you away because you're so you know much nothing. So when you feel that way about yourself, you can't have good relationships. So what they mean when they say love yourself is a good thing, it's necessary, what they really mean is you have to not dislike yourself. You, that negativity and disliking yourself is your fear. So another way of expressing that thing about uh, you have to love yourself or you can love others is you have to not have so much fear that you are consumed by your fear to the point that, you know, there's you don't have really much capability or much capacity to love because you're so fear-based. And that is a valid, a good idea. But the idea of loving yourself, that uh, is not a good idea. If you really love yourself, well, there's a psychiatric you know, designation for loving yourself. You know? that's, not a, that's not a good thing. Disliking yourself is not a good thing. Being fearful is not a good thing. But loving is always a good thing. So ego is just negative because it's, it's fear-based for almost everyone because most of us are dominated by our fears. Now, let's say you're a person who doesn't have any fear. You're just a being of love. You've become love. You have a very, very low entropy consciousness, very high quality. You still have a sense of self. You still know who you are. It's not like suddenly you have amnesia, you know, and don't have any self-identity anymore. Of course you have a sense of self, but that's, that's awareness in the service of love. Your sense of self isn't about making sure that you get what you want. Your sense of self is, I can help other people, not I can get what I want. So it's not this idea of having a self-awareness that's the problem. Self-awareness is just fine. It's ego, awareness in the service of fear, that's the problem, not self-awareness. Self-awareness is necessary. If you're not self-aware, you're not conscious. So self-awareness is a good thing. But when we're dominated by fear, that self-awareness comes out as ego. You see, when we're not dominated by fear, that self-awareness comes out as superego. It comes out as love, as caring about other people. Right.
Right. Uh, thanks for thanks for that, Tom. Um, I was also going to ask you, why is it that um, sort of younger people, uh, majority of younger people, should I say, uh, why is it that they're almost fueled, uh, filled with uh, ego and and fear? Is there is there some sort of reason reason for that? Yes. There is a reason for that. When you begin this world, when your free will awareness unit first, uh, you know, kind of wakes up with a new avatar, well, that little infant is aware only of what it can sense and what it can understand, which isn't much at all. It just knows it's now in a different environment. It was in a in a nice, warm, slushy liquid environment, now it's in a totally different environment and its sense data suddenly, you know, gets all this information and it's trying to figure it out. Well, if you start there, you're entirely self-focused. You don't know anything about other yet. Everything is about you. That other is all a big mystery. You don't know where that sense data is coming from, where that cold air suddenly comes from, or that loving touch or the rest of it. You have no idea. You're just in a new environment. Remember, you come in knowing nothing. You come in only with your quality, and then you get you get this sense data. Okay, when you're when you're born, well, you get sense data before you're born, but it suddenly changes then, and you're very self-centered because you don't have any other information. You don't have enough experience to be really aware of other at that point. So children start off being very self-centered. It's natural. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Look at uh, dogs and cats. You'll find that's the same thing. Dogs are very self-centered. It's about them. Now, they love their people, no doubt. But if you see dogs together, dogs in the pack, dogs just interacting the way dogs are, then you'll see that they're very self-focused. It's just the nature of things like that. Until you become very aware of a bigger environment, you are self-focused. So children start out being self-centered. And as they grow up, they learn to let that go. You know, they get told, share your toys. You know, no, don't grab somebody else's toys. You know, you need to share. You need to, you know, don't be a bully. You need to care about people and you get taught. That's what raising children is all about. You're helping them grow up to let go of that self-centeredness as they expand their understanding of a larger world, a larger world that contains other people and other animals and things. You know, don't don't smack the cat. You know, be nice to the kitty. You know, that sort of thing. And little children need to learn that because they're very self-centered. So that's the whole deal. We start here very self-centered, and we grow up, and we let go of that. And as we keep growing, making choices, seeing bigger pictures, understanding other people, learning to care about those other people, learning to make it more than just about us, well, that's what it's all about. So, yes, kids tend to be self-centered because that's the way it is being a kid. They don't have enough experience. They haven't had enough relationships, say, outside the family. 
All right, let's say you grow up and now you're 22 and you just graduated from college, you get married and you and your wife has a child. Well, now you've got a whole set of different responsibilities. You've got a woman to take care of and a child to take care of. Suddenly being self-centered doesn't work very well anymore because you've got all of these other things that demand your attention and your time and your resources that you have to give whether it feels good or not, you have to give. Whether it hurts or not, whether it's two jobs or not, you have to make that work. So that's a growing experience. The more you grow up, the more responsibility you get. The more responsibility, the less you can be successful and still be self-centered. So that's the idea. Now, in our culture, because we have so much fear in this culture, you know, a lot of people who become successes in whatever they do, their, their business, it's because they are self-centered. It's all about them. You know, they manipulate things. And often we see that people who are manipulative and underhanded and uh, not nice end up going up the ladder first in their corporations because they're willing to do things that the nice people won't. And that's just the nature of our collective consciousness is that we're not very grown. So rather than that person get corrected like they would when they were a child, they get promoted. And that's part of uh, the reality that you, that you have to work in. That's just another challenge for you to do the right thing, even if it hurts, even if it means you don't get the promotion because you won't do that job that you're asked to do by your employer because it's unethical and you just refuse to do it because you're not going to do things that are unethical. Well, that may cost you a job, but at least you are still are a whole person with your ethics and your morality and your character is intact, which is a whole lot more important than that promotion. So you get more and more challenges like that the older you get for making right choices rather than easy choices. But when you're young, self-centered is just the way it is. It's very rare for somebody like you two to be interested in the nature of reality. You see, you probably don't have a lot of friends at school that say, hey, let's have a discussion about the nature of reality and, you know, uh, how things work and reality systems and whether or not this is a virtual reality, you know, mostly the other kids are going to look at you and say, you're weird, you know, don't hang out with that kid, there's something wrong with him. Well, that's part of a price that you pay for growing up a little faster than the other kids, for being aware, for caring, for wanting to grow up, for looking for your fears and noticing them and getting rid of them. That's a price you'll pay for that is you will be Kind of a loner in that sense, because there won't be many people that you can discuss this with. Well, that's, that uh, is just the way it is. But you will be way ahead in the long run for that. But you still need to be able to interact with your peers, you see. Even if they don't understand, you need to interact with them as they are and not expect them to be as you are. You don't. Expect them to be interested in these things. That's okay. Meet them at their level, interact with them at their level, and be good with that. You see, what's, what's risky when you're, when you're advanced like you two are? What's risky about being out ahead 
is that you look back and you start feeling superior. You start feeling better. Oh, I understand the world a lot better than these kids. Oh, these kids are so immature. You know, they're so this and that. And pretty soon, they even know that's true. They are less mature than you. They do know a lot less about what's going on in the world than you do. Though that's true, you just have to accept that as the fact the way it is and not turn that into, I'm better. I'm somehow superior, you see, because then that just feeds your ego. And now it slows down your growth. So that's the, that's the risk of kind of growing up faster than your peers is not to get caught in the trap of seeing yourself as superior to your peers, but just see yourself as different to your peers. Not superior, just different. And this difference is really great. This difference will help you all through your life. It'll make everything in your life work better. And that will be fine. Right now, it leaves you maybe a little lonely in the sense that you just can't talk to a whole lot of people about these these subjects. And that means that, uh, you know, you're your close friends are not but so close because they're really not interested. But you'll run into a friend now and again that will be interested, and you'll find people who are growing up like you are that uh, you can talk to. It's just that there's not as many of them. But always be cautious not to fall into the ego trap of being superior. Rather, just be different. See, all of us are on our own path. You've got a path that's going to go someplace that, probably these other kids aren't going to go. And it's going to unfold right in front of you, one step at a time. And as long as you see that you're just different and this is my path, so I'll walk down it, you'll be fine. If you see your path as a superior path, you'll just get yourself into trouble and it, it won't work out for you very well. So everybody is trying to do their best with what they've got. Well, what most people have got is a whole lot of fear a whole lot of ego and a whole lot of beliefs. That's what most people got. And they're trying to do the best they can with that. You see? So they're making their choices. But to you, those choices often seem immature, silly, and this sort of thing. You just don't see why it would be so much fun to string a whole lot of toilet paper around, you know, somebody's front porch. Whereas maybe all your friends think that would just really be a hoot. And you say, I don't think so. I'd rather go someplace else. I don't want to be a part of that. So it makes you a bit of an outsider. Well, that's for you to balance. That's for you to juggle that and be good with your differences. Your differences are are terrific. You are really getting a head start by being interested in these sorts of things and understanding and looking for your fears at such a young age. You'll find them more easily. You'll get rid of them more easily. Everything will work better for you because of that. Just don't get your ego pushed up around the fact that your difference makes you superior. It just makes you different. If you can keep that in mind, then you guys uh, will do really, really well in your life. Things will get easier and easier for you as you grow up. Your hard times are going to be when you're young and have all the rest of those kids that are very self-centered, you know, as your, uh, as your peers and your friends, whereas you're learning to let go of some of that self-centeredness and see the world as, as, uh, as a, something out there that deserves your attention and caring. Wow. Um, 
thank you, Tom, uh, for that answer. That was really uh, sort of. So I've got a question to ask, Mr. Tom. There are human beings, but are there other races in other realities? Maybe what we would consider aliens. Yes, in other reality frames, there are things that don't look like us at all. We would consider them aliens. They're alien in the sense that they're not from this reality. Now, that doesn't mean they're not from this universe. This, our whole universe here is one reality frame. So they're outside of our universe in another reality frame. Sometimes, though, there are beings in other reality frames, other avatars in other reality frames that look very much like our avatars. They, you know, kind of humanoid and, and uh, are very much the way we are, and some are not. I've been to both. Thanks for the answer, Tom. Take it off, uh, Carl. Oh, um, I think that's all. Sorry, I think that's all the uh, questions I have. Uh, I think we're out of uh, questions, Tom. But thank you for your answers. They were extremely meaningful. Well, thank you for the questions because they were truly meaningful. You know, you two youngsters here have asked a lot of very good questions, and there's going to be a lot of of probably more adults than kids who watch this who are going to learn from, you know, the questions you've asked and the answers that were given. So it's, a, it's something that uh, a lot of people will get something out of. They were good, solid questions about the way the world works. So I've had a good time. It's been a lot of fun. I'm always happy to see young people who are interested in growing up and getting rid of fear because, like I said, when you're that young, when you're as young as you guys are, getting rid of fear is much easier than it is when you're older. But if you can get rid of it at your age, then uh, that would be a, a great thing to do, particularly in what's natural at your age is to be self-centered and full of fear. That's the way young people tend to be because that's where you start and that's what you grow out of. So you guys have a really big head start, and I think that's wonderful. Because this is what will eventually make this world a better place, is when most of the free will awareness units playing avatars in this world have evolved the quality of their consciousness to where there's little fear. At that point, this place, instead of being, you know, the mean streets out there that uh, kind of an ugly place to, to live with a lot of violence and, and people using other people, You'll have a very lovely place, a very happy place, a place where everybody gets to optimize themselves. Everybody gets a maximum amount of, of freedom of choice. That would be a super place. But what it will take is for a large number of avatars to have consciousnesses that are evolved. And that's going to only take place when people start young. People start getting it at a younger and younger age. That's the, that's the solution. So thank you, guys. I'm glad you're ahead of your time. I'm glad you come here. I think this, this youth fireside chat is terrific. Not only are the questions good, but it shows a lot of people out there that you don't have to put this off. It's not like, well, I can do this later. You, know, you can do it now. It's always so exciting to be able to talk to you, Tom. 
just being able to ask questions and you being able to answer them. So thanks for inviting us to this youth fireside chat, and I'll be happy to join the next one. Yeah, well, great. Uh, hopefully we'll get some more people, but uh, you guys didn't have any problem holding up, uh, you know, your end of the questions at all through this through this thing. You've done really well. But um, it still would be nice to have, you know, maybe three or four more young people involved in it. But there's very few young people your age that are really interested. And uh, it's young people don't own their schedules like older people do. When you're a young person, you kind of have to do and be where your parents say you're going to have to be and the things that you do. So it's not like you're in charge of your schedules and you get to say what, where you're going to be and what you're going to do whenever you want to. you got a lot of coordinating to do with your families to pull this off. And that makes it a little more difficult. So I can see that the young people have a, a little harder time. They've got a lot to do, a lot to do, and uh, it's harder for them to to uh, schedule things. But I'm glad you guys made it, and maybe we'll get some more next time. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Oliver, Tom. for putting it together. Great idea, this this uh, youth chat. Yeah, I uh, I do enjoy having these chats with you, asking the questions, your answers, uh, they're, they're very meaningful and I try to you know, apply MBT, apply your answers of my everyday life. Uh, I, uh, so, that, so they do help me. Um, if you don't mind me asking, Tom, if, providing we have enough time, how did you of create of MBT? How did you come up with the with the idea for it and how did you start to realize that this place probably isn't what it seems well you know i started learning about the larger reality when i was probably uh younger than you guys i probably was in you know like five years old or so six years old and some entities came and and uh, took me out of body and uh, showed me around a little bit, let me fly around through some walls and play with it uh, some. So I had those experiences very, very young. And from that time on, I had, um, I didn't really consider them non-physical friends, but I could always get answers and I could always get an understanding just by posing the question in my mind and the answer would come. And I was aware of, a larger reality that had more answers than I did and that was accessible by me. And then later when I was in my 20s, I uh, connected with Bob Monroe and then started it all up again because by the time I was maybe seven, I that was shut off. I didn't have those experiences, the out-of-body experiences anymore because the entities who were working with me didn't want me to grow up too different. They didn't want that to be a problem in my growing up, that I was way different than other people because that would cause probably some dysfunction in my socialization that I needed to go through, you know, at a young age. So that was cut off, but it came back in my 20s. And then I was a physicist. I was in graduate school, and uh, I was my job was to understand how reality worked. And as all those things came back to me as I started working with Bob Monroe, I wanted to put them into a context that 
a model, something that would explain all the things that I experienced out of the side of this reality and inside this reality. I wanted to merge my physics with my out-of-body trips. So I would just focused on that and trying to understand it, trying to do some science, trying to do some physics while I was out of body to understand how things worked. You know, change the variable and do it again, change the variable and do it again, just that sort of thing. And eventually, somebody asked me, how does everything work? And I tried to tell them, and I realized that it was pretty fuzzy in my own mind because I hadn't figured out a lot of the details yet, so I needed to write it down to make it clearer. And then, to my surprise, one day it became almost big enough for a book. And then three years, four or five years after that, I realized there was way too much for a book, and I needed to break it into pieces, and then it was three books. So it, uh, it, it grows. And as I developed this stuff, answers came. And I figured things out as I'd get to logical points where I didn't know how to get from, you know, from A to B logically. And then I'd find a logical bridge. I'd think about it and I'd, I'd try to work it out. What was the possi what were all the possibilities? But by then, of course, I was working in a career as a physicist. So thinking analytically and logical process was what I do for a living. So I applied all that to it, and eventually it just worked out. And then I found out I not only had a theory of consciousness, I had a better theory of physics, too. And it just, you know, one thing leads to the next to the next. So that's the way it is. There's really not a plan. You don't wake up one day and write a book because, you know, you had it in a dream. It's something that uh, just just happens as it happens. Yeah. 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 I um I find the possibility of this place being not what it seems to be, something that's not you know, really properly physical. I find that possibility just the mere possibility of it, I find it just amazing. Because, you know, you've grown up in a place where in schools you're taught, you know, this things are made out of molecules and this and that, you know, science stuff, and all of that's objective. So you're even taught in schools as you grow up that this is is physical. And right. I think when you when you are introduced to something like MBT that radically changes what you were taught. I think a lot of people tend to not be ready to hear something like that because they've been, you know, they've grown up in it. And so right. I think for some people it can be, it can be a little bit hard to accept it as a possibility. But I like how um, you give answers uh, and things like that, but you don't necessarily say that you know, what you say is fact. You give people the the opportunity to go and, you know, research for themselves. And I think that's what I respect about you. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to just lay on another layer of belief on top of whatever beliefs you already have. That wouldn't be very helpful to you at all. So you have to always be skeptical of everything. But you live in a world where there are a lot of believers with a lot of beliefs in material process, and there is a rule set. 
And a lot of the things that science says are things that do happen because that's the way the rule set works. The rule set, you know, defines those kinds of relationships. So indeed, uh, you know, what science is often telling you is the way the rule set works. It's just not a material thing, as they say. It's a, uh, you know, it's a virtual thing. So both of those reality frames can be, can be, uh, you know, you can have both of them. You can have that physical viewpoint, which is, this is how the rule set works. And then you can have that non-physical viewpoint. You know, the larger reality is a virtual reality based on a rule set. So they're not really fundamentally incompatible. It's just that the physical, the, the objective set that's, that's looking at the rule set, that's just a subset. That's just one part of something that's a lot bigger. You see, there is this piece of our reality that appears to be objective to us because the uncertainty is small, and that's where science works. But that's just one small piece of a much bigger pie. That's one small piece of a much bigger life. Most of the rich part of our lives, the parts that are really most important to us, are all subjective. Relationships, you know, really important for our, us and our growing up. You know, it's mostly all subjective. The, the big things in our life are subjective. So you see that there is this, this small chunk of our life that's objective, and it follows a rule set. There are rules, and science tries to find out what these rules are. And that's a good thing. It's not that science is wrong. It's just that science is limited to a, to a subset of a bigger picture is the way to look at it. So it's better to see the big picture because then you can understand a lot more than just that objective part. You can understand all the rest of it, which turns out to be, for most people, the more important part. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I do agree. Um, sometimes, I hope we're not running too over. I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time. But obviously, when I'm, uh, when I'm at school or something like that, I sort of feel a bit of a, you know, a bit different, not in an ego way, but I just generally feel different than the other chil you know, children, because I can't speak to them about some of the things I'm aware of, and so I think it's just, I think that's a positive thing about this youth fireside chat is that I can, I can uh, speak to other younger kids that are also aware of what I'm aware of, so we can have sort of a. Uh, you know, conversation about it, and it's just nice to have these chats about it, because at school or in other places where there are other kids, I can't really talk to them about it, because, you know, most of them are gonna write me off as a little right. bit on they the, wouldn't uh, understand. They wouldn't understand, and then they would anything they don't understand, that's, that's again being the, the social animals, the herd animals that we are. Anything that's different creates fear. So if there's somebody and they're different than you, people tend to fear that. It makes them feel uneasy. They're not sure about it. It creates uncertainty in their mind of about that person. So that's part of us as herd animals. We like conformity. Conformity makes us feel safe. And you being different and you share that difference with people, it's going to come back to you as a negative most of the time. 
So you share it very carefully, and as you start getting that negative thing back, then you let it go. You don't share it anymore. That's how far you can you can interact with it. But you, yeah, you're going to be different, and uh, you'll just uh, grow up that way. It'll not be a, you know, it's not going to be that hard a thing. I did that my whole life. I was I was kind of on my own, different. I didn't really feel that connected socially to people my age because I was thinking bigger thoughts and things that uh, nobody else was interested in. But it's not really a bad thing. But it is a price you pay for being aware. The more aware you are, then uh, the uh, you have to realize that you're with other people who aren't so aware, and you have to treat them with respect, too. Is they're doing, like I say, the best they can with what they've got. And you have to respect them just being as they are. Yeah, yeah. I just... It sort of amazes me, really, because, um... You know, when people I introduce to the idea of MBT, they, you know, you think they react, you know, curiously. And some people do. But it's like the majority of people understand why they reject it without you know sort of doing research because at the end of the day for me at least in, in my opinion the the mere you know the possibility that this place isn't real uh, in quotes isn't what it seems it was just so intriguing to me I had to you know do more research and I just I I'm a little bit confused because people know surely you're introduced to something like mbt surely you know you'd be curious about it but it seems to be like opposite and it just confuses me as to why yeah well that's uh yeah it's going to be that way they're just not ready for it yet they're not interested in it and uh you know you can always approach this subject Kyle, in a way that isn't personal, you can just talk about virtual reality and virtual reality games. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting to think of this place as a virtual reality? And how would we know the difference? And people would, you know, so you can talk in that kind of a general way and find that people will talk with you that way. Then if you get personal and yeah. say, you know, I think it's a virtual reality, and, that, 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 and then suddenly, uh, you know, you're the odd man out, and it changes the conversation. So talk, you know, talk about it in, in, in general context rather than a personal context, and you'll find people will be more interested, particularly kids that play a lot of virtual reality games, you know, particularly kids that are playing No Man's Sky and virtual reality games that are really very, you know, realistic in the sense that they're done very much the way this reality is done. And, uh, you know, it could challenge them a little bit. Well, if this, uh, you know, was a virtual reality, how could you tell? And they'd say something obvious like, well, if it's a virtual reality, I could do anything I wanted. And you'd say, no, you couldn't. You know, can your elf do anything, you know, you want? No, your elf can only do the things that your elf's allowed to do. You can't make it fly. You can't make it do things that you want. So you could, you know, play devil's advocate some and not make it a, a personal thing. It might help. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do, like, I was, uh, I was at school the other day, 
and um people were talking about religion and you know god and someone said said to someone what if god exists and he responded with well what if this place is we're in a computer and i remember thinking then you know you have no idea how right you are but obviously i couldn't say anything about it because like you said i'd be the odd one out and things like that and i find it sort of a shame that you can't speak openly about it um but i guess you know like you said it's it's way you know people aren't ready to hear it they're fearful of, of it well you can try it you can try it out just don't push it further than seems reasonable when somebody makes a comment yeah we're living in a computer you could say yeah that's an interesting idea i've thought about that too and then wait and see what they say so just don't take it any further than people are willing to go. Don't push them past their uh, comfort point. But you could talk. Maybe there's another person like you that really would like to talk to somebody, but they're afraid to talk. So you can talk about the subjects. Just don't take them any further than the other people are willing to go with it and keep it non-personal. Anyway, it's just something you guys will have to learn to live with. It's, uh, you know, you are different. There's not that many kids that uh, are interested in, at your age in, uh, in my big toe and larger realities and, uh, uh, you know, how the world works. That's uncommon. So you'll have to just realize that that's uncommon and it's going to stay that way for a while. But it'll get better. You guys are young and you're, you're, your friends are going to be playing these virtual reality games. And it's not going to be that big a deal about something being a virtual reality particularly as the years go by and the VR games get more and more and more realistic, it'll be more and more obvious that, uh, you know, virtual reality games can become so realistic that you can't tell it's a virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. I... Well, thank you for answering all of our questions, Tom. I hope we didn't take up too much of, of your time, uh, but your, your answers... They were they were very interesting, very meaningful to me. So I'll definitely try to apply them. Okay. Well, you're welcome, guys. It's uh, good. We'll uh, do this again sometime. Oliver will schedule another one, and uh, we will uh, try to get a few more people. But, shoot, we did fine just with the two of you. So uh, I think it was all a great success. So I do need to go now because I have two grandkids that have just gotten in the house, and uh, I'm surprised we haven't heard them yet. They tend to be a little on the noisy side, but they're uh, like five years old, two five-year-old boys, and you know boys love noise. So, yeah. okay. Well, see you later. There's okay, that. Yeah. Later. Bye, Tom. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yep. So long. Merry Christmas to all of you. Bye, Tom. So long.